scripture this morning is John 11, 17 through 44. It's page 897 in the Black Bibles. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. morning. My name is Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at Soma, and I'd like to start us off just by doing something that is going to make those of you who did not like uh, the experience in middle school where somebody got up like a hype person to like do the whole, I can't hear you, how excited are you sort of thing. But this is not a, an attempt just to build hype for hype's sake. It's something to connect us to the church and as we already have done through uh, the Apostles' Creed, connect us to the church throughout millennia that have been doing something regularly on this day. And it is simply the call and response of the leader saying, He is risen. And the congregation saying, He is risen indeed. Catch the grammar there because it's actually very important theologically. I'll get to that in my sermon. And so, he is risen is what I will say in a moment, and you, though you despise that person in middle school, will, to the best of your ability, 
in a unified front say he is risen indeed with the vigor that actually says you believe it. So here we go. Are we ready for this? I'm seeing general agreement, and that volume on that yes gave me a lot of encouragement. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Now, does anyone want to be the bold person to say April Fool's right now? Because that would be bold indeed. But I'm going to go ahead and be like, even if you want to go there, I'm willing to go there with you because it's something that is been baffling people throughout the millennia. And it is something that every single religion, every single thought system, every single person who's ever walked the earth that has heard of the concept of Jesus of Nazareth has had to do something with him. You can't just dismiss him as a figure that got bigger than everyone thought, though a lot of people try that, because he keeps coming back. It's why every year at this time there'll be a lot of articles to talk about what actually happened, because people are still trying to figure something out to explain what nobody has been able to fully disprove over millennia now. But I want to get into things, but I want to do a prayer uh, for us right now. So pray with me, and then we'll dive more into that. Father God, Lord, I, I pray for those who are here that desperately need to hear a word from the resurrection and the life, who you claim to be. And Lord, that is a word that goes for people that are in need of hope, eternally speaking. But some people that are needing hope right here, right now, in this moment. Lord, there are people that have heard this message a thousand times, but never heard it fully. And I'm guessing that some of them are assuming that's somebody else right now. There are Christians, people who know and believe your gospel, that have heard this message a hundred times, but have yet to hear it fully. Lord, I'm convinced more this year than ever that I have yet to let the fullness of Easter seep into every part of my soul. So Lord, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would give us communion with you, who is the risen Lord, the risen king, and is the resurrection and the life. So bring that word for us now, and bring that word for us for all eternity. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you're a podcast listener. I am. However, I'm not an NPR podcast listener, which seems to be most of podcast listeners. But if you listen to the podcast, This American Life, you are very familiar with the very common storytelling formula they use. They say, hey, when we make out a whole storyboard for what are we going to do with this American life, we seek to answer two questions and two questions simply. This is a story of blank, and this is important to you because blank. They say if they can establish those two things to anyone at any time, then they will be compelled to listen to the story. If they truly understand what it's about, and they truly believe that it has importance for them. And so, though many of you have been spending your entire lives coming to Easter services, 
Many of us have a vague understanding of this is a story about death, resurrection, Jesus, cross, sin, all that stuff. But maybe it never fails or it never succeeds in passing a level of mere sentimentality for you or vague nostalgia and tradition because you fail to really hold in a deep way a grasping of this matters to me because blank. So allow me to use Ira Glass's format and the rest of those who do This American Life and say it this way. This is a story about God dealing with humanity's most eternal and foundational problem and need. And it is important to us because we are all in every way and in every moment of our lives attempting to do all that we can to solve that problem on our own and we're failing desperately at it because we're all dying every one of us at this moment is dying we might be more acquainted with it because we just find ourselves at an age or a time or a place of health that we are more in a place that that is a day-to-day reality that we either push away or have to accept. Or we might be vaguely acquainted with it because you are like at that point where you just finally had the injury that didn't fully go away or you find yourself of like you do this certain sport that you could always do now makes you limp for like a week. Like I recently have had realization that if I run at the level and the miles that I used to run at, eventually if I do that enough days in a row, I have to stop because my knee starts throbbing and swelling and I, I, I can't do what I used to. I'm realizing the universal truth that was preached to me so many times, but of course it was ignored until this moment that you only get one set of knees. Or you're dealing with death in the eyes of viewing it through a parent or a grandparent or pets, which I'm not trying to trivialize in any way. Death is a violation to all that was meant to be. And however big or small you're experiencing it or dealing with it, it is violating, painful, and wrong. Some of you are dealing with death on a much, much smaller basis. Just the simple fact that death seems to win a little bit every single day. The second law of thermodynamics. All things fall into entropy because everything that is made is constantly falling into disorder. Order is constantly becoming chaos. Jesus being the resurrection and the life plays into this profoundly because Jesus did not come and say, hey, I have the resurrection and the life. I opened a portal for you to now experience the resurrection and the life. Rather, he came saying, I am the resurrection and the life. If he just knows about the resurrection and life, can give a nice prescription for you or a moral code to go find it. 
then great for one day. But that has nothing to do with Monday morning, has nothing to do with how you leave this room, has nothing to do with the very much so real pains and experiences of death that you are experiencing and you are lamenting. Your only hope at that point is to seek salvation in any of the natural means that you have found most effective for you, whether that is working and finding success in your career or trying to drink and numb away or fall into some escapism or do CrossFit or some aesthetic practice that you adhere to at a rigorous discipline to. Doing whatever you can to push off the inevitable that you are dying right now. And of course, how do we then, again, even if we realize, okay, but someday, high pie in the sky and the great by and by after I die, I will live again. How does Easter and how does Christianity have anything to say about this moment and this time? And I believe that's exactly what Easter is trying to speak painfully to, but often we completely miss it. We come here and celebrate pure anticipation, but fail to realize that Jesus, when he said, I am the resurrection and the life, was talking about actualization. He was talking about this moment, the moment he was in and the moment we're currently in. So I hope you get that difference. But that's my job if you don't for the next little bit. Well, actually, let me be more accurate. That's the Holy Spirit's job, but let's just see what he wants to do. So if you would, open back up with me to John chapter 11, and you'll get the live amount of time it takes a person to turn there because I've closed my Bible. Though I got to admit, I'm getting pretty good at this after so many years. John eleven seventeen. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus loves Lazarus. He loves Mary. He loves Martha. You see that if you don't have to just take, like, like how do you know, Pastor? Like, how do you, like, know the inner workings of these people's relationships? It's in the scriptures right here, verse 3, when it says, So the sisters sent to him, being Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. And then in verse 5 of 11, it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And you can even go to verse 36, which we did read, which you have to flip the page to do so, but we will. And we'll see there, there where it says 36, So the Jews said, See how he loved him, as they saw him give chest-heaving sobs and moans next to this man's gravesite. And so I point that all out to you simply to ask you this. Why does Jesus wait? Why does Jesus hold up when he's told, hey, Lazarus is sick and like really sick. Like he's probably going to die. And Jesus says, okay, cool. And he waits and doesn't show up for four days. That's exactly what Martha wants to know. And you see that starting in verse 19, where she says this, And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out and met him. 
but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to the Lord, or said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. In her grief, Martha hatches a desperate plan. We know she's desperate because she's leaving the funeral services, which she, as the oldest, would have had responsibilities for. She would have been in charge of making sure everything was good. That's why it says, hey, she charged out, but there were many Jews that had come down uh, to Bethany to be with them, so Mary had to stay behind. It's because Mary, somebody, and it should have been Martha, had to be taking care of making sure everything was in order, making sure all the dishes had enough of those sliced radishes and tiny little pickles and all the other weird food that you eat at funerals. And Martha ditches all of that because she is in a place of desperation. And she, she knows that Jesus could heal. She'd been around him enough. They were in relationship long enough. His reputation long precedes him there. My question is, is, does she know that he can rise from the dead? Like it seems to say, hey, I know that even now, what, whatever you ask, the Father will give to you. Which, if I'm honest, and I'm reading this in a person that's honest and treats these people like real people and, and not flannel graph characters, I, I think that is a mix of true faith that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do. And I think it's also a mix of Religious platitudes and things that you plaster over things when you're, when you're feeling low and when you are truly in grief. And so as she says this partially to ask and possibly partially to convince herself, I want to know, did she know he could raise from the dead? Because he'd done it twice before. He did it to Jairus' daughter, who was a synagogue leader. When he was going through and teaching, this man comes and says, hey, my daughter's sick ill. Jesus goes. He gets there a little too late because he stops to heal a woman who'd been bleeding for 11 years. And then the messenger comes and says, hey, the girl's dead already. Don't even worry about bothering the teacher anymore. And Jesus says, hey, no, have faith. He goes to the little girl, says, little girl, get up. But it says it was in the privacy of that guy's home. And he says, don't tell anybody about it. So we can assume that Martha maybe didn't know that instance. But there also was the widow from Nain. And it talks about Jesus walking out and seeing a funeral procession for a man. And it says that the man was a widow's only son. So she has no husband to take care of her. And she has no sons now to take care of her. In that day, in that time, she was, it was more than just her mourning her only son. It was her essentially mourning her own life. Because it was a to- only a matter of time before she's dead or given herself over to the most desperate of means to make money. And so in that, it says that Jesus saw her and took pity on her. And he sees the funeral procession, and for all way that only Jesus can, says, not today, and just raises the body right up and says, it's time to party now. And it says of that time that that there was a rumor, there was a reputation that began spreading about him. And so I wonder, did Martha hear that rumor? But regardless of if she heard it or not, this still is an extremely desperate question because it's been four days when Jesus shows up. That's not an arbitrary amount of time. Jesus isn't just like sitting there like, hey, Lazarus is really sick. He pulls up his calendar on his iWatch and is like, man, this week is slammed. Not to mention my church softball team is in the league tournament and we're like, we at least got to see it through the final, and then we'll see what we can do, and we'll kick it over to Bethany. 
This is a specific amount of time because three days was considered to be the amount of time that a soul remained in or close to the body of the deceased. So in Jewish culture, when somebody died, everybody shows up for the first three days because they want to be with the family and they're probably coming around to pray that if it'd be possible, the soul that they believed was either still present or very nearby would return to the corpse. But after three days, everybody went home and you let the family grieve on their own because that person's really gone. And what's fascinating to me is that it says that Jesus shows up on the fourth day, and it says that there are still Jews there present that had come down to mourn with them, which says to me this, Jesus showed up the exact second that the fourth day began. That people didn't even have a time to pack up all their stuff and get out of Bethany back to Jerusalem to give the family their proper decent time to mourn on their own. That Jesus showed up the very first second that all hope was gone. But I think he showed up that quickly because he loved them. Because he, he didn't want them to have to wait a second longer than what he thought was necessary to truly give them hope in a way that they had never experienced before. And so he shows up on a very specific moment. And... I'll, I'll, uh, is their faith, uh, your faith, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, there we go. I was like, where am I going? I'm preaching the sermon, right? Yes, there we go. It's Easter. <laughs> let me say this, and let me just take the moment to apply this. Some of you have had your faith shaken because Jesus didn't seem to show up. And there's experiences right now Will you keep asking him to show up, asking him to move, asking him to make himself known, asking him to give you enough hope to feel like you can stand, maybe just for the day, and you feel like he's deserted you? And let me just submit to you that this story, and many like it, might be making the very painful in the moment but amazingly hopeful point that Jesus might have yet to show up because he loves you. Because he is waiting for the moment when your hope in whatever else you're holding on to can fully be put in the grave so that he can give you the actual hope that will save and sustain and will never abandon you. And so if you're sitting there praying to God and you feel like you're hitting the ceiling of the room and never getting out of into the heavens, maybe it's very much so the God who is very present with you in that moment is in his loving and patient, kind will to you is saying, no, I, I need the last stitch of hope in that to die so that I can give them a hope that will never die. Next moment in 23. D.A. Carson, who's a scholar, calls what Jesus says to Mary after he asks, or after she asks, 
the most painfully ambiguous, comedically vague statement, and it's very intentionally done. 23 says this, Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, she was a Jew, so she had a concept for the resurrection. That was fully in her framework. If you look at Matthew 22, 23, it's a story about the Sadducees, which were a specific group of Judaism that did not believe in the resurrection, but they were unique in that came and asked him, like, hey, what about this, you know, what about a hypothetical scenario where a woman marries a brother, and he dies, and marries the younger brother, and he dies, and marries the younger brother, and he dies, and after seven times, whose wife does that belong to in the resurrection? They were trying to be like, hey, if that's possible that it could happen, then how could it be possible there could be a resurrection? Because while that's a crazy statement, something less than could actually happen like that. And Jesus bats that question away. But the point is not to go into why all that and how that all works out. The point is to say that they had a concept for resurrection. In fact, in the early times of Christianity, Jews and Christians did not see them as fundamentally different. They saw themselves as basically the same. Jews were simply people that were hoping for a resurrection and a Messiah that they were still waiting to show up. And Christians were the ones who believed that the Messiah had shown up. And so they actually saw, they called the Christians Jews, because they said, no, they believe the exact same thing. They're just a different sect. There's several sects of Judaism, and that is S-E-C-T-S, not S-E-X, but if you're turning out, welcome back. Um, there were several sects of Judaism at that time, and they simply said, this is just a new one, a new form where they heretically think that the Messiah has come, and he hasn't, but they saw themselves as having the same basic beliefs. So Jews had a concept of a resurrection. And Martha says in this moment, the most vague statement of professing a vague belief in God's power and some sort of ethereal understanding of what it will be like in the end of days. And this is really where I really want to drill down for us this morning because I think that this is where Martha and you and I are very much so the same in this moment. And Jesus is going to bring a very relevant truth of what it means to be the resurrection, the life to her that I think you desperately need, and I do too. We all seem to have some vague understandings about God's power. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's doing things for the good of all who love him and serve him. And we also seem to have some vague understandings that Easter is to point to the life to come, the resurrection, the, the eternal moment. But again, we lose the power of what it actually means for us when the call with really hard news comes in this moment, or the relationship ends in this moment, or the financial underwater can't shovel out enough to get the ship to get up right again begins in this moment. And Jesus coming and saying, hey, I want you to know something, Martha. Regardless about what's going to happen at the end of days, which is very much so a truth about the resurrection and the life, I am the resurrection and the life. Again, I 
I, I, I don't bring it. I don't have the ability to show you the map to it. I don't prescribe it. I am it. Ash Wednesday this year, which some of you were attending and some of you couldn't because uh, it happened at 6.30 a.m. I was happy I was there. And, uh, but Ash Wednesday this year, I got up and said, hey, a lot of you are, are having your lives hit the wall right now. Like a lot of you are just that place where you feel like God has brought you to the point where you feel you can't move forward. You were excited about Jesus, about the gospel, about things at one time, but now you've just gotten to the point where it's really hard and you don't know, like even all your emotions that you once had are cold and dead, or the marriage that were once, the emotions were, were there are now cold and dead, or your passion for life and your passion for like seeing what is going to come next was once alive and now is dead. And I, I said, and I used the analogy that, that Peter Scazzaro writes about where he said, it's like you're at a wall and all you can do is ask for God to you come to it daily and say, here I am, God, and ask him to push you through it slowly but surely. And for me, I, there's many walls yet to come, but I talked about in 2017, um, man, it was just like, it was like a really, really hard year for me and my family. Like, the hardest thing about it was there wasn't an event that I could point to. They say like, hey, this was it. This was why once we get this fixed or this figured out or I can mourn this or I can get over this, then I'll be fine. It was a nebulous sense of I don't know why I can't return to a normal state of peace and joy and faith in God for who he is, but I, I, I can't. I remember going on a vacation last summer and day one of the vacation, I wake up with a jolt of anxiety in my veins that would not leave for close to seven or eight months after that. The entire vacation, I'm sitting there, I'm supposed to be relaxing. And this is the worst of all hells on earth if you've ever been on vacation, the point where you're supposed to be like, if I come back from this tired, then it's over. And you're sitting there trying to get to a point where you can actually be Okay, and again, I, the thing was, is like I couldn't figure out what was wrong. I couldn't figure out what was disconnecting. I couldn't figure out what I was failing to believe. I couldn't figure out what needed to get righted again. All I knew is that I, I couldn't have peace. And so I woke up every day early, and then I went back to work afraid. And then I spent day after day after day with half of the capacity, no, a quarter of the capacity, and a sense of this, I, all I want to do is just hole up and push away because I, I'm in despair right now. And despair is defined as the general belief that things will never get better and that you are where you are. You simply have nothing to do but to accept the unfortunate but painful reality that this is it. I remember reading the book of Job, which is not a book to read um, at this time, because mainly you apply all sorts of weird things. You start to being like, oh, I'm just like Job. And we misapply the point of Job of like, basically the Job is just like, hey, quit complaining. You're not as bad as this guy, you know, which is not the point of Job. 
In fact, the point of Job, I think, in so many ways is, is God good even when life is like Job's? Or something much less than Job's? Is God good now? What I was failing to believe and what God took months and months and months and months of me continuing to process with anxiety and continuing to process with saying, hey, I, I don't think I'm going to be able to continue in my job right now. I just don't feel like I can continue to, 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 to find hope every single day, even though it kept showing up. I just feel like tomorrow's the day where it doesn't go, and that tomorrow's the day where it doesn't show. And after months and months, I realized that I was misunderstanding Jesus saying, hey, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 10, 10, the chapter before this, Jesus is going to say, hey, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the door of which you come through. I am the one, the, the thief, he says, comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I have come so that you might have life and have it abundantly. And what he's saying in that moment, it's the same word as eternal, by the way. Every single time when Jesus is going to talk about eternal life, He's not talking about your life in heaven. He's talking about this moment. He's talking about for those who believe in him, for those who find to, are able to be connected to him, they will have life and have it to the full. They will have eternal life in this moment. And over months, I was able to start interacting with a God who actually was preaching that truth to me. And I think it was in three ways. One, the truth of Jesus being the resurrection and the life does give us a future hope. Again, the entire idea of despair is that life will never get better and this, this is all there is. And everybody is wrestling with that to some level. And so we all try to find some form of a gospel to get us through that. And often it can be the gospel of the West. If you get enough money and enough security and enough comfort, enough ability and the right family and the right relationships, then you will be at peace. The problem is we are several years into that experiment and are finding it woefully falling short. Or you have the gospel of sexuality. That the highest achievement in life is to just connect with as many people sexually as possible to, exceem- to achieve some level of of ecstasy. The problem is we're several years into that experiment and it has fallen woefully short. There's the gospel of tech, the gospel of the city. Just move downtown, go to the trendiest places, experience the most walkable and enjoyable and simplistic and joyful life and you will find life to the full. A lot of you are into that experiment and it's not working. But the biblical hope is a powerful one. It's one that says, hey, life is hard. Jesus lived a very difficult life. But he said, hey, I am creating a kingdom in this world that will push forward life into this world slowly but surely. I've come so that all would know it's good news that I'm here. No matter who you are, no matter how burnt out, no matter how much you're in mourning, no matter how much you've been hungering and thirsting for this world to be right again, no matter how much you are yearning to see God but feel like he's far from you, it's good news because I'm here now, my kingdom has began, and now all is being made right. 
And, and that is a hope that if you give yourself to it, if you find yourself fully into it. I, I mean, I said last week about how the most crazy thing about self-fulfillment is that the more we've chased it in this society, the less we found ourselves fulfilled. But Christians were literally being persecuted and fed to lions, being burned on stakes, being pierced through with the sword, and found themselves in complete fulfillment. Because they were holding on to a hope that this world is broken, but the kingdom is here. That, that the victory has come, and now we are simply a matter of time before all things are working under the right rule of the good king who came to bring life to all people, to bring it to those who were in the most need of hope, to bring it to those who were pushed the furthest away from him, that he says all can come and find life. And that's a good news for the future, but again, I want to bring that into the now. Because he says, hey, a few ways this comes into the now is now you can come to me and you can learn what it's like to be human again. We've been in the Sermon on the Mount, and basically it's this entire manifesto for what it looks like to be a human in the kingdom of God. And he's saying, now that the kingdom of God is here, you need to realize, ditch the ways that you have been violating your humanity. Ditch the ways that you've been trying to find life, but let's admit, have not been working, and come find the way that it is to be human. And I know you can't do it because you're weak, but I will give you the power you need to be what you were made to be. And so that's why the Sermon on the Mount doesn't sound like, hey, it's no big deal if I do this, this. It says like, no, no, have this heart and then find freedom from all that binds you in sin and in death and in shame. But then also... It gives a hope of just what I experienced this past year. I just remember talking with someone who just gave me this simple advice. They said, hey, I don't know if this will work. But when a person speaks truths about who God is, that's the most powerful thing one can do. And the only time you know you're not lying in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't matter if you feel it. It doesn't matter if you experience it to be true. How about you just spend some time daily speaking truths about God. And so I did that. I just like, I, I mean, I told you last week, I use a lot of timers in my spiritual disciplines. And so I just set a timer for four minutes. I said, I'm just gonna take four minutes to say truths about God. Everything from like biblical, like the alpha, like you are the alpha and omega, uh, to just things that like connected to me experientially. You are omnicompetent. And that was a truth for whatever reason just resonated with my soul because I felt a-competent. And over day after day of doing that and pressing to, to just prayer and asking God to be near, even though I didn't really feel like he was, and, and day after day of just like coming near to him, I found him come near to me. It's what we call mystical communion in Christian life. People get really freaked out about it. It's essentially Jesus being the resurrection and the life for you now. He does that for cancer patients. He does that for those who have felt like they have betrayed every moral boundary they never would. He does those for those who feel like they have to betray every moral boundary to, to make life work out. He has come near to person after person after person who has simply sought him and he has made himself found. And he preached truth of heart, that this life is hard. 
Christianity does not take that. As the dread pirate Roberts once said, life is pain, highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling you something, pastors included. Life does not fail to be hard this side of all things being made new. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And you can experience that in the midst of where you are right now. You can experience the fullness of resurrection. Yo, not in its total fullness, which we'll all experience someday. But in the absolute fullness that you need in this moment. And so I just want to end by asking you the same question that Jesus asked to Martha. Do you believe that? Do you believe he is the resurrection and the life? And if you do, if you're holding on to that, no matter what you're going through in this moment, how would that change your life? How would that change the way the power of despair ruled over you. Not, again, that it wouldn't be present, but that you might experience Jesus as the resurrection and the life as its presence. How would that change anxiety for you? The early church was most known for anything as being those who were extremely patient. Not because they didn't want to see the world change. They actually ended up changing the world. But they had not an anxious presence, but a presence that our God is bringing the kingdom and we simply can join him in that activity. In anger, I mean the culture of outrage, we talk about all the time because it's getting ridiculous. But anger is actually a really good thing. I've heard someone once say, hey, I'm angry enough to ask you this question or I'm angry enough to tell you how much I love you right now. And what they're saying, what they're giving weight to is that they realize that there is a redeemed presence of anger. That Jesus at Lazarus's grave says at one point that he gets indignant. It says deeply moved, but if you look at the footnote, it says it also means indignant, which sounds a lot more like what's going on in this moment. Because he's angry at death itself. And in his anger, he vanquishes death. And so we can be a people that in our anger don't have to compete with others, don't have to take others down, don't have to hold grudges and bitterness forever but can bring the kingdom into this world through a righteous, passionate anger that says death needs to go and our war is not with flesh and blood. How would this change your life if you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? If you believe that, even if you realize you're failing in a thousand ways to hold on to it, even though you're realizing you need grace daily to grapple onto it tighter, you're a Christian. And I invite you to take the meal of communion with us. The way we take communion and the way that we do it every week is to come and take a piece of the bread that represents Jesus' body broken for your body and dip it in the cup which represents his blood shed for you. And as you do that, you remind that this is not remembering something that will someday fulfill you, but that Jesus is the resurrection and the life here and now.
that you're participating in stepping into the next world right now. And if you're here, and your honest, question, your honest answer to the question of do you believe that, do you believe Jesus is the resurrection and the life, is I honestly don't know. Then I'm glad you're here. And feel free to stay present in your chair and to wrestle what it might look like to rethink your entire existence in light of the inbreaking kingdom of God. You don't have to come to an answer to that right now, but I pray that you might. But either way, allow us to come forward and to realize that we are being made new in this moment with the resurrection of life. Let me pray for us now. Father God, Lord, I pray that we as a people would experience the power of Easter, and we wouldn't just experience it on a date, on a calendar, but we'd experience it in a reality that re-sees how everything is playing out, and re-sees how everything in our lives is working together, and, and and reevaluates what it's like to be a human in the kingdom of those who made humans to thrive and to be connected to you. And Lord, allow us to experience Easter in the darkest of moments so that even when we truly mourn, we find ourselves to be a blessed people because we are not left without a final hope that will not put us to shame and will allow us to experience life to the full, both eternally and in this moment right now. You have given us all we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus because he is the resurrection and the life for us right now, right here and eternally. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.